I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Ted Burnham. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, October 4th, 2011. Coming up, wildfires. We'll speak with hydrologist Deb Martin and atmospheric chemist Jim Roberts about some of the things scientists have learned in the years since the Four Mile Canyon fire. Fire's been with us for about a billion years in the Earth system, and it's going to be with us until we run out of oxygen, so we're going to learn how to live with it and manage it uh, instead of avoid it. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The Tevatron, the massive particle accelerator that for 28 years helped scientists probe the existence, the essence of existence, is no more. Scientists at Fermilab in Illinois turned off the gargantuan machine for good last Friday, September 30th. When it was in operation, the Tevatron was the single most powerful device in the world for accelerating protons and antiprotons. It hurled the subatomic particles around a high-tech racetrack, four miles in circumference, at 99.9999954% the speed of light, focusing, focusing them into collisions within two massive detectors. The collisions between the particles reproduced the highly energetic conditions present in the early universe, and they helped scientists understand the structure of matter at very small scales. The Tevatron's discoveries have been legend, Perhaps the most famous was the discovery in 1995 of the top quark. One of the fundamental components of matter, the top quark is as heavy as a gold atom, but much smaller than a proton. It was the last undiscovered quark of the six predicted to exist by theory. The Tevatron, America's crown jewel of high-energy physics, blinked out with its superconducting magnets blazing. As of its final day of operation, the massive collider recorded its second-highest number of proton-antiproton collisions in a single week. In coming years, Fermilab scientists will continue to analyze the enormous amount of data produced by the Tevatron, searching, among other things, for signs of the elusive Higgs boson, the so-called God particle. The Higgs boson is thought to give all matter in the universe its mass, but so far it has evaded detection. The hunt for the God particle has now shifted to an accelerator in Europe called the Large Hadron Collider. New research suggests that pale people may need vitamin D supplements. It's been widely accepted by medical researchers that people with darker skins who live up north may have an extra need for vitamin D supplements. After all, having lots of melanin in the skin is fine near the equator, where UV rays are constant and strong, and the melanin protects against sunburn. But when the light up north starts waning, as it's doing right now in Colorado, the angle of the sun makes it hard to get enough of the right UV for vitamin D, and having lots of melanin makes it even harder. That's been the general assumption. But now, researchers at the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom suggest that people with very pale skin may also need vitamin D supplements. Their reasoning? Pale faces don't have much melanin in their skin, making it hard for their bodies to manufacture vitamin D without also getting a sunburn. The study reported that vitamin D levels should be at least 60 nanograms, which would make roughly half the people in the U.S. vitamin D deficient. The National Institutes of Health state that the normal range for vitamin D in the blood should be between 30 and 74 nanograms to prevent bone disease such as rickets. The UK researchers chose 60 because lower levels may be linked to heart disease and breast cancer. When researchers at the National Institute of Standards and Technology want to know how various building structures and materials will stand up to wildfires, 
they team up with Japanese scientists and a fire-breathing dragon. But this is no mythical creature. This dragon is a mechanical beast, a custom-built machine that burns wood chips and expels red-hot embers at controllable rates. And the dragon's latest target? Your patio. Let me explain. Those embers, called firebrands, are often what spreads a wildfire from trees to houses, especially under high wind conditions, like those during the Four Mile Canyon fire. Fire reconstructions have shown that houses with outdoor decks are particularly vulnerable to ignition when showers of firebrands are kicked up by strong winds. Now, NIST researchers want to know which deck structures and materials are more likely to succumb to firebrands and which are more resistant. To make precise laboratory-controlled measurements, the NIST Dragon is paired with a wind tunnel facility at Japan's Building Research Institute. The combination allows researchers to vary both the wind speed and the intensity of firebrands so as to precisely simulate different fire scenarios and see how buildings respond. The results of the Dragon tests may have significant implications for homeowners on the border between urban and wild land. Many homes in the Four Mile area, for instance, were built long before fire mitigation standards were added to building codes, and those that exist today are based on partial understandings of the behavior of firebrands, which NIST researchers intend to make more complete. And speaking of fire, Boulder County has declared October Wildfire Awareness Month. According to County Community Wildlife Protection Planner Jim Webster, quote, nearly half of Boulder County is forested and at high risk for wildfires. He continues, population growth in the forested areas has resulted in an increased risk of wildfire and in more direct impacts to residents. So we want to help people take a role in preventing and preparing for future wildfires. The month's activities include volunteer events and educational programs to learn more about this dangerous natural, natural phenomenon and what can be done to minimize its effects on residents and the environment. Mechanical forest thinning is a regular practice on county properties to reduce fire danger improve wildlife habitat, and enhance meadow ecosystems. To avoid soil erosion and invasive weeds, volunteers are invited to help with restoration and reseeding. Join them at the Reynolds Ranch Open Space, October 8th and 15th. Sunday, October 16th, is Fire on the Mountain, a guided fire ecology hike. Learn about the role of fire in ponderosa pine ecosystems and the ways in which forest management can minimize its impacts. During the one-mile hike, a Boulder County naturalist will discuss the impacts and rehabilitation efforts following last year's Four Mile Canyon fire. Jack Cohen will be giving a keynote lecture to wrap up the month's activities. Cohen is a research scientist at the Fire Sciences Laboratory in the Forest Service's Rocky Mountain Research Station. His talk is entitled, Residential Fire Destruction During Wildfires, and will be held October 27th on the CU campus. October will also mark the launch of Boulder County's Community Wildfire Protection Plan. To find out more about the plan, or to participate in the month's activities, go to the Boulder County website. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Ted Burnham. Today we're talking about wildfires, taking a look back at last autumn's Four Mile Canyon fire, and at some of the scientific opportunities that have risen from the ashes. With us in the studio now are two boulder-based researchers for whom the devastation of the fire also represented an unprecedented windfall of data. Deb Martin, a hydrologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, 
and Jim Roberts, an atmospheric chemist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. J Deb, Jim, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you. Thanks. Now, I imagine that for most people in Boulder, uh, the, the day of the Four Mile Fire was a day of sort of helplessness. Um, I, I know for me, I walked out and smelled smoke and, and realized there was a wildfire, but there's really nothing that, that most people could have done. Uh, but as a, as a scientist, what was, what was your reaction? And Jim, let's start with you. Well, we had done some uh, work at uh, Fire Sciences Lab in Missoula, Montana, and we had gotten some interesting data and um, had contemplated doing some larger field projects associated with fire. You can, you can find places where they have prescribed burns, for example. And here was an opportunity that just presented itself uh, with a local fire. So a lot of us in our laboratory went in and turned our instruments on and started making measurements and uh, really got some unique data, as you said. Uh, it was uh, one of those opportunities that just doesn't happen very often. Fortunately, it doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Deb, what was it like for you? Well, my initial efforts were done from afar because, in fact, I was in the air flying to take my youngest son to college when the fire happened. And so I got on the phone right away and talked to my colleagues about um, getting into the burned area as soon as possible to start instrumenting it. So we're often told that wildfires are a natural part of ecosystems, but it's rare to see them so close to Boulder. So why was this fire such a rare event? Well, I would say it wasn't so rare to see it so close to Boulder because, in fact, in 1989, when we moved up to Sugarloaf, uh, the Black Tiger fire roared out of Boulder Canyon and came very close to our house. So I, I had the feeling that, in fact, wildfire was a pretty c common occurrence in the wildland urban interface based on that experience. And yet, uh, the fires are rarely of the magnitude that we saw in, in Four Mile, at least so close to Boulder. Um, and I understand that a lot of the fires that you both have studied are, are very far away. Well, again, I would say we have a lot of fires here locally. The Overland Fire happened in October of, of I'm not sure which date, 2002, let's say 2003. Um, so we have a, a lot of fires here in Boulder. But you're right, my research has been conducted mostly in areas that are, are much farther away from the laboratory. So having this in my backyard, literally, has been a real opportunity, as you said, Ted. Mm -hmm. What advantages yeah. did that provide for your research to have it so close? So you can imagine that we're able to go out very frequently. Our office, the USGS office is here in Boulder, and so my colleagues are going out on a daily basis to the burned area. Initially, the research site was located on our property because it's within the burned perimeter, and then the research expanded to adjacent areas, and so the advantage really is, is the frequency that, that we can go out and, and monitor the sites. And Jim, you were collecting data during the fire itself. Um, what, what sort of instruments were you using, and, and how did it differ from the other fires you've studied? Um, the, the difference in this fire is, of course, it was a natural fire, and uh, as, as we know, it was a mixed fire, not just uh, trees and shrubs, but also quite a bit of uh, uh, housing and, and that kind of thing, and fueled partly by that, those kinds of fuels. Um, so it was uh, a mixed fire uh, we had not seen before. We had studied mostly um, particular biomass uh, fires that would be found in uh, a biome that was going to be burned. Um, what people may not realize uh, is that there are prescribed burns all over the country 
to control uh, fuel loads and uh, make fires when they do happen less severe. Uh, there's also agricultural fires that happen, uh, and you can see those in Weld County as you're driving up I-25. And so we've seen those fires, but uh, this was one that we had not we had not seen a mixed fire before. And the kind of instrumentation that we use is kind of one-of-a-kind instrumentation that's really oriented towards looking at the detailed chemistry of what happens in those fires. Um, my particular instrument is a, a chemical ionization mass spectrometer that measures acidic compounds, things we typically think of as acids, but are in the atmosphere, not not in solution, the way we typically think of acids. So uh, nitric acid, sulfuric acid, uh, when it's in the gas phase, hydrochloric acid, uh, things like that. And uh, in particular, we saw uh, isocyanic acid, which is a new compound that uh, we're just finding out is in a lot of uh, biomass fires. So obviously you're not a medical professional, but do you know what kind of human health implications there might be for this chemical? Yeah, we, we, I stumbled on a paper that was um, more of a biochemical study of what happens to cyanate ion when it's in the bloodstream. Cyanate ion is what isocyanic acid makes when it goes into solution. And it has a particular uh, protein modification chemistry that's associated with inflammation. Inflammation is one of these processes the body goes through mostly as a protective um, response to uh, allergens and uh, infectious agents, but it can, is also associated with chronic diseases such as heart disease and asthma and cataracts and uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So the connection that we made is that smoke has this compound in there that forms cyanide ion in the bloodstream and does this chemistry. Now, precise relationship between the exposure and the health effects, that, that really isn't known right now. We don't have any quantitative information about that. Uh, so I really wanted to get the word out and see if we could partner with people to study that kind of thing. So that data was uh, published back in the spring, correct? Yeah, that was in May. And what are the next steps? Have you have you been able to partner with anybody yet? Or what would you like to see come out of that, that next phase of research? Well, we've done a number of things. Uh, We've kind of connected up with people who are interested in doing epidemiology uh, in relation to biomass burning. Um, it's awfully hard to do human exposure studies because, uh, of course, you can't use human test subjects, uh, but you can go into places where there is exposure. For example, in many places in developing countries, people heat and cook with biomass in open flames in their in their houses, and so. We're thinking about partnering with people who do those kinds of studies to see if we can add some chemical detail to the epidemiology that they already do. They collect health data, they, they screen people, they also uh, are developing uh, clean stove technology to, to reduce exposure. And so we're hoping to kind of uh, make some connections in that community to, to get some of that involvement. So it sounds like there's really a global reach for some of this data that's come out of Four Mile. I think there is, yeah. There's, there's uh, certainly global connections. So let's bring Deb Martin back into the conversation here. Um, while Jim was collecting his data during the fire and then has been analyzing it since, um, how has the U.S. Geological Survey been studying the Four Mile Burn area? Well, we have all sorts of efforts that are going on right now. The initial effort was to collect ash after the fire, and Jim, you might be interested to know that those um, ash samples are being subjected to simulated gastric 
and lung fluids, um, getting indirectly at some of the health health mm-hmm. effects of the ash um, that's being examined by geochemists within our agency. Um, there's an, an uh, initial effort to look at the soil moisture because that's a real uh, predictor of the potential for runoff to look at the um, the whole moisture profile within the uh, soil. Um, weather instruments were put up so that we understand the evaporation, the the, um, the solar gain and, and those sorts of issues. Uh, water quality uh, monitoring was started right away after the fire. And so um, these are hopefully long-term efforts that, that we can continue in the burned area as the, the uh, system changes. Because as we know, these burned areas are very dynamic. So as a hydrologist, can you tell us a little more about the connection between water and wildfires, which seem like very separate issues? Oh, sure. I'd love to talk about that. So our observation is that there's a lot more runoff from burned areas. And Ted sat through a whole talk that I gave last night at REI about this topic, but the major uh, reasons for that is that you lose the protective cover on the soil surface, which um, is a storage for the water. And the, um, the, you lose that. Uh, you also have the potential for developing what we call fire-induced water repellency. Uh, you have the potential for some soil sealing by small uh, particles in the ash itself. Um, and so those are the major reasons that you see increased runoff from burned areas. As soon as you get more runoff, that has the potential to entrain sediment. So you, you tend to get more sediment in the water. That water quality monitoring that I mentioned has shown that there's increased turbidity, per, turbidity for example. Um, turbidity is a, a measure of how much sediment is, is, is in loose the in the water. water. That's exactly right. And there's two ways of measuring that. Suspended sediment is one, but turbidity is a standard method used by water providers, for example. So definitely have seen increases in turbidity. And perhaps you you heard that after the storms of July 7th and July 13th of this year, we had a lot of erosion that was that showed up in the canyon and has been removed by the county. So in addition to erosion, what other implications on the landscape scale is there hydrologically after a fire? Well, you can imagine there's a lot of of evaporation and transpiration by the the, uh, trees and shrubs and grasses. And so you fundamentally alter that initially. Um, So you get reduced um, evapotranspiration, as they call it, by, by the big trees, and that exhibits itself as increased base flow. So the stream has more water in it initially because that water is not being used by by the trees. Um, But that changes very quickly and and so we see that as soon as the trees don't use the water then other uh, plants use it. There's a big growth of of grasses for example and um, in the the case of um, the land that I'm familiar with on Sugarloaf there's been a lot of of annual, what we would call weeds, for example, that have come in, that are using that water. So very soon that effect diminishes. But what we do see are, are so increased base flow, that, that background level flow, but increased peak flows. So we get a lot of flooding um, after the burned area, and that will diminish with time. Are there... Um 
Are there anything anything else that we need to worry about downstream? I mean, you mentioned the the turbidity issue, and we're lucky that in in Boulder we're drawing our water from above the four mile area. But um, the Pinebrook Hills Water District, for instance, uh, does get some of their water from from the four mile area. So, is there anything they need to worry about, or or anything else further downstream that that might come out of this? That's a great question. So, an active area of research is to look at what are the potential, what is the potential for disinfection byproducts, for example. So, right now, there's all sorts of organic compounds that get into the the water um, from natural sources, but also as as the water's flowing through these burned hill slopes, it introduces compounds that we don't know much about. And so there's a, a, a research activity to understand uh, what that does to the, the potential for the formation of what's called disinfection byproducts. Uh, there's a, uh, an effort to understand what the long-term effects are on the stream biota and, and so forth. So it's a long-term research project, really, to understand what the effects, the short-term and the long-term effects are on water quality. All right. Um, now, October is Wildfire Awareness Month, and in our last couple minutes here, um, I'd like to know if your experiences studying this fire have changed your perspective on Wildfire Awareness Month um, and, and on uh, things people need to need to know. Jim? Uh, yeah, I guess I could start with that. Um, yeah, it certainly changed my perspective to understand that there, there are particular biochemical effects of smoke that go beyond sort of just the the particles and carbon monoxide effects that we're, we're used to. Um, and I, I kind of think differently around uh, wildfires and even campfires. Um, I, I'm not trying to completely avoid exposure, but I'm certainly aware of uh, exposure a lot more. And trying not uh, to try breathe to, in the smoke, you mean? I try to moderate my exposure, mm -hmm. I, I think would be uh, the best way to put it. <laughs> All um, right. Uh, and, and Deb, what would you like people to know about uh, Wildfire Awareness Month? On a personal level, I'm very interested in, in building fire-resistant houses. And so as Boulder County evaluates their wildfire protection plan, um, I think that we need to think about, a lot about uh, land use planning for not only the fire, but what might happen after the fire. So, for example, the post-fire flooding and erosion, I think, needs to be um, a part of the awareness of what, what the whole fire issue is. And so de designing houses and, and uh, ways of using property that, that would prepare for those. Right, and even thinking ahead and, and thinking that there are, are places that are not safe to build from the fire perspective and from the post-fire perspective. Okay. Well, thank you both. We've been speaking with scientists Jim Robert of NOAA and Deb Martin of the U.S. Geological Survey about wildfire ecology and some of the things scientists have learned since the Four Mile Canyon last year. If you'd like more information about Wildfire Awareness Month, you can visit www.bouldercounty.org. Thank you guys for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Tom McKinnon. This week's show, was, show producer was Ted Burnham, and our engineer was Shelley Schlender. We had additional help from Tom Eulsman. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, a.k.a. Techler. Additional music from Leo Kotke. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org. Podcasts of our shows are available there and through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 
447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Brianna Draxler.